Let's ask the Lord to help us as we give our attention to his word, to give us clarity, to give us understanding, uh, to give us a, a firm conviction that this really is uh, the word of the living God, not the words of men. Father, you are an awesome God, and we thank you for your kind providence by which your word has been preserved perfectly, that has been, you've caused it to be written down for our good use, for our study, our reflection. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit's work in us, we would hide the word of Christ in our hearts that we might not sin against you, that we would be encouraged for these evil days. We pray that you would strengthen us. We pray that you would convince us of the overwhelming power of Christ and his gospel to conquer all the evil that remains in this world, both inside of us and outside of us. We ask this for Christ's sake. We ask it for the good of your people. Amen. As you take your seat, would you turn with me to Psalm number 83? Psalm number 83. This will be the the final uh, psalm in a a short series of, of psalms that I've done under the heading of Psalms of Imprecation. These are the psalms that, that may strike our ears as, as strange because they call for cursing. They call for God's curses and God's wrath and judgment to be poured out on people. And we think that's odd under the New Testament and the age of the gospel for us to pray in such a way. But maybe it's even odder still to have such a text on an Easter morning. It might seem like an odd passage to choose for a day known around the world as Easter Sunday. I want to encourage you to think about this in a couple of ways. One, we mark Easter Sunday 52 times a year. 52 times. The fact that we meet on Sunday, that we meet on the first day of the week, is testimony to that fact. We don't meet on Saturdays anymore, which means we are marking the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And also, the Lord's Supper, as we we observe this week after week, it points to the fact that we believe not only that Christ died, but that he rose. And we commemorate that every single week. I don't have a problem at all, I don't have any issue at all with, with marking out one particular Sunday and saying, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. The difficulty I have is that 51 other weeks, we often neglect that. We neglect the work of Christ and his redeeming grace and neglect even the means of grace, neglect attending uh, church at all. And so I want to encourage you to think about that, that every day as you come, not just this Sunday, but every Sunday, when you come and gather with God's people, you're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. You're marking that. But with that said... When we understand Psalm number 83 in what we would call its canonical context, in other words, if we understand Psalm 83 in, in the context of all of the Scripture, it's actually a remarkably appropriate Easter message. It's actually a remarkably appropriate text to remind us of the necessity and the benefit of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Psalm 83 paints a dramatic picture of God's people surrounded on all sides by their enemies. Not just enemies surrounding them, but enemies who are actively plotting and conspiring together. Enemies that have blasphemed God. Enemies who have sworn their allegiance to one another. Enemies who wish to destroy God's people utterly. 
and even when all seems hopeless. Psalm 83 reminds us that the people of God, when all things look hopeless, may look back on what God has done in the past. Look at God's past deliverance. They may think back on God's previous rescue of them, and there, on that reflection, find the strength, the faith, the courage, the hope to call on God once again for deliverance. So how should we, as God's people, respond to such a scenario where it seems as if evil is everywhere, where it's just all around us? How do we respond? Psalm 83 should cause us to dig deeper than merely ask, what do we do? But rather, how do we think? How do we believe? How do we rest in such a situation? Derek Kidner reminds us that the Psalms, and and perhaps maybe in particular these imprecatory Psalms, communicate to us more than just what we call didactic. These are more than just information. The Psalms are given for us not just for their content, but for how they affect us. Listen to what he says. A vividness of communication which is beyond the reach of cautious literalism. A vivid communication that's beyond the reach of a cautious literalism. He goes on. The Psalms have, among other roles in Scripture, one which is peculiarly their own, to touch and kindle us rather than simply to address us. The passages on which we may be tempted to sit in judgment have the shocking immediacy of a scream to startle us into feeling something of the desperation which produced them. This is revelation in a mode more indirect but more intimate than most other forms. The shocking immediacy of a scream where it arrests our attention. This is more than just God telling us how things are. But he's invited us, in a sense, to feel this. And so we're going to enter in to an historic occasion where God's people are meditating upon God's work of redemption in the past. At the very moment, they are facing overwhelming odds against them. And then may the Spirit of God give us courage to stand with them in prayer and call upon the Lord, believing that just as he has done in the past he is able to do far more abundantly than we even ask or think. I've titled the psalm today, Psalm 83, is Evil Stands No Chance of Victory. Evil stands no chance. Now that's contrary to what our eyes will tell us sometimes. That is contrary to what our ears may tell us. That is contrary to what the headlines scream at us. But it is a true statement. Evil has no chance of victory. The psalm really breaks in three stanzas. They're not equal in length, but one through nine, or one through eight, I'm sorry, marks the first stanza. We could summarize it this way. The righteous take heed of the intentions of the wicked. So in other words, the righteous say, we see it. We mark the deeds of the wicked. The second stanza, verses nine through 12, the righteous remember God's previous rescue. And the third stanza, Verses 13 to 18, the righteous call on God knowing that he will hear their prayers. So if you want to summarize those three headings, Mark, remember, and call upon the Lord. Mark, remember, and pray. So let's read together Psalm 83. and Think, think 
those in mind. I did have, uh, you may have, um, if you're paying close attention, you may have recognized that our Old Testament reading this morning was out of order. We've been going through Second Kings. We had Second Chronicles. I asked Misty to sub that one in because that's the historical context for Psalm 83. What we saw with King Jehoshaphat and all of Israel surrounded by this horde of enemies, it was in that context that Asaph very likely penned this psalm. Listen to the word of God. Psalm number 83, a song, a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold... Your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you, they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre, Ashur, also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Selah. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Oh, my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Amen. Let's take note in the first place, looking at this first stanza, verses 1 through 8. The righteous take heeds of the schemes of the wicked. I want to point out several things here. Recognize, first of all, that this attack is an attack on God himself. And, and what's, what's interesting here is Asaph, as he pens the psalm, sort of switches back and forth between pronouns. O God, do not keep silence, do not hold your peace, or be still, O God, for behold, your enemies make an uproar. They lay crafty plans against your people. So which is it? Are they attacking God? Or are they attacking his people? The answer is Yes. Because to attack God's people is to attack him. God says about Israel, they are the apple of my eye. You touch them, you touch me. Verse 3, they lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make it a covenant. See, Asaph knew something very important. When the people of God are attacked, God himself is attacked. Saul learned this the hard way. Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus with letters from the high priest to go and arrest men and women, both, and put them into custody. And as he went on the way, a blinding light struck him and knocked him off his horse. 
And he heard the voice of Christ himself saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It was personal. Now, you men, you married men, you understand this. Someone attacks your wife. They've attacked you, haven't they? Mamas, you know this too. They attack your little ones. They've got to deal with you. It is personal, isn't it? And if we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, if we, as, human, as sinful human creatures, understand this, how much more will God Most High so identifies with his holy people, the ones who he has set apart under his own name, by his own covenant, and then ultimately and finally by the blood of his own son. How will he not take this personally? But there's a second thing that we, we point out here with respect to the righteous taking heed the schemes of the wicked is that Asaph leads the people of God to take the threat seriously. He doesn't say, oh, they're after God. We don't have to worry about it. He doesn't say, well, this is, a, this is merely a spiritual battle. They're attacking the name of God. They're not really going to do anything to us. No, they, they took it very seriously. They recognize. They lay crafty plans. They consult together. See, this is language of conspiracy. This is language of coordinated effort. This is the lame, language of intentional harm. They say, let us wipe them out as a nation. They're not sugarcoating anything here. People of God must be wise, must be keen to the fact that the enemies are real, they are vicious, and they they make actual, literal plans. And if they had their wishes fulfilled, they would wipe the people of God off the planet. So they take the threat seriously. But they also recognize, thirdly, they recognize there's an inherent pride and blasphemy that goes on here. That what, what ultimately animates and motivates these coordinated attacks is pride. They conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The hubris, the pride to say, we will stand against God most high. Who's willing to say that? What kind of wickedness produces that kind of impulse in a human heart to say, I will stand against God? See, it's a pride, it's a hubris, and, and, and it's necessary for us as the people of God to recognize this for what it really is. But there's a fourth thing that we want to note of it. Note, note the distribution of the enemies. And sometimes when we read through things in the Old Testament, we, you know, there's all these names and there's all these ites, Ishmaelites and Amalekites and all these, and we think, what, what does this have to do with anything today. Well, think about this. Let's make some observations. Look here at verse, at verse um, 6. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagrites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher, also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Now, as we read in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 earlier, some of these names show up there, but not all of them. In fact, at no point in history can you really say that every single one of these was literally physically gathered together in the same time and place. So what's the point of that? It's to, it's to remind us of how widespread and ubiquitous evil is. That there are people from every nation and tongue and people group who oppose the work of God. So it reminds us that these enemies are numerous, 
They are coordinated. They come from all different kinds of places. But there's also something else that's, that's very critical for us to notice. Out of the ten listed here, six of them were insiders. Six of them were near relatives or descendants of Abraham, the covenant head. Four of them were direct descendants of Abraham, the father of the faithful. Two of them were of the children of Lot. See, the Edom was the sons of Esau. The Ishmaelites are Abraham's first son. Moab were the grandchildren of Lot. The Hagrites were the sons of Ishmael, the illegitimate son of Abraham. The Ammonites were grandchildren of Lot. The Amalekites descend from Esau's son, Eliphaz. And then we have, of course, the Philistines and the inhabitants of Tyre. Those were long-standing enemies of Israel. But Asher was the son of Shem, the son of Adam. And we, does that surprise you? Does it surprise you? That those who were, humanly speaking, closest to the faith are now the enemies of God? It, it shouldn't surprise us. There's an important lesson here. And Asaph, again, poetically, this comes with the urgency of a scream. This comes to us in ways that are far more poignant than just me telling you the information. As they would have sung this song together, and they would have known. We have to remind ourselves who these people are. They would have known much more clearly and immediately. The Amalekites, the Hagrites. We have to go back and look and look those up. They knew. These were family members. These were former church members. These were those who had once professed a faith, who were, who were near to the covenant promises and who had rejected them and had become enemies of God. And if we take a careful look today, we say, see the same is still true, doesn't it? Those many times, sadly, those even who named the name of Christ are ones promoting the most vile and wicked practices. Those who name the name of Christ are actually by their works opposing the work of the gospel. So it shouldn't surprise us. In Psalm 49, in verse 5, the psalmist says, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? See, the message here is that evil really is everywhere, and it's not just everywhere out there, it's everywhere close by. And it's not an underestimation. It's not, it's not a... a reduction of our view of what wickedness and evil really is. See, the Scriptures deal honestly with us. There's, there's no smoke and mirrors. There's no puffing us up to think, well, it's not as bad as you think. No, it is. It's worse. It's worse than you think. It's worse than we can imagine. But the psalm doesn't end with verse 8. There's more. Acts chapter 18 and verse 9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid... But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Paul faced the same reality. There are enemies everywhere, and you don't even know who they are. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, we know, John says, that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So these matters, saints, are not lofty. They're not theoretical. 
They're not hypothetical, but rather they confront us right where we live, in the midst of our, of our culture that is, is, is at enmity with God in, in various ways. Perhaps the most, some of the most pressing examples of this is, is the rapid and, and, and radical changes with respect to the denouncing of God's clear teaching and what natural revelation itself testifies us, to us about the nature of man and human sexuality. And for some to shake their fist at God and say, I will not be who you've made me to be. You've made me a man, I will not be a man. You've made me a woman, I will not be a woman. Or, you've made me a mother, and I will not be a mother. I will slaughter the gift that you've given to me. And many of those name the name of Christ. Some of those claim to be near and in the covenant. Those who stand for righteousness and the plain teaching of God's word are then vilified as, as bigots. They call for our destruction. They call for our elimination from the public square. And some of those calls are sons of Esau. Do you understand what I mean by that? Many who name the name of Christ are twisting God's word and demanding that Christians jettison the truth of Scripture in the name of tolerance, in the name of acceptance of sin. Beloved, we we must mark sin. We must take heed of it. We must call it what it is. We don't soften it by euphemisms. We don't make excuses for it, accommodations for it. We don't give partiality or in any way reduce the ugliness of sin. And we must remember how close sin is to us. It's not merely near the door. It's already breached the door, hasn't it? Sin lives within us. The imprecatory psalms ought to cause us to take sin seriously as we confront it not only outside the camp, but as it exists in our own souls. Paul, Apostle Paul, of course, said in Romans 7, speaking as as a believer, speaking even as an, an apostle, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. See, he personifies his own sin here, his own impulse to sinful deeds. He personifies his evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh. I serve the law of sin. Paul said, even as a believer, the things that I I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do. The things that I know I'm not supposed to do, that's what I find myself doing. Who will deliver me? See, our flesh, saying, still conspires against us. It makes crafty plans. It consults together against our own emotions, against our own fleshly desires, and against the Lord's work in us. Evil really is close at hand, closer than we know and worse than we think. So as God's people, we have to take heed to the schemes of our enemies. We do not overestimate ourselves. We do not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. How often does the scripture tell us that? 
as we do business, as we're in the marketplace, as we're in our extended families and we're in our neighborhoods and we see evil all around us. We market for what it is. Take the necessary precautions to keep ourselves from the evil one. See, it's of no value to our own souls or to the cause of Christ merely to point out our enemies and yet find no hope in actually dealing with them. So that brings us to the next stanza, verses 9 to 12. It is not enough that we simply recognize evil's there and it's worse than I think. Now I'm in despair. Now I'm in excessive sorrow. Now I'm in fear and anxiety and I can't go forward. That's not where the word of God wants to leave us. In the next stanza, we learn that the righteous remember God's previous rescue. I think this is is, uh, particularly appropriate as we prepare to start a preaching series next next Lord's Day uh, on the book of Judges. If you've read through Judges, you'll, you'll see some familiar names here. But here, the righteous remember God's previous rescue. So in 2 Chronicles 20, we saw some of these names. But in Judges 4 in particular where you have the, the, the episode of Deborah and Barak, you see <clears throat> the names of Sisera and Jabin. And then in, verse, in, in chapters 6 through 8 of Judges, you see names that are common to the account or familiar to the account of Gideon. You see the names of Oreb and Zeb, Zeba and Zalmunna, who were the kings and princes of the Midianites. What do we learn from this? Why, why is it? We, have to, we should ask ourselves this. Why is this here in the Scripture? Why in the midst of, of all this going on as Jehoshaphat is king of Israel and the people are being attacked, why do they think back on the time of the judges of all times? I mean, there are plenty of times, plenty of illustrations that you could draw from from the Old Testament Scriptures of times when God delivered his people. Why do you think they chose these particular names? Do to them. This is a prayer. Okay? Lord, will you do to them as you did to Midian? As to Sisera and Jabin, the river Kishon. Remember, Sisera got a tent peg driven through his temples by a woman. Mighty king goes to sleep with some milk. She puts a tent peg through his head. It's a picture. Again, it's just that shocking immediacy of a scream. It's a picture of of destruction coming upon the wicked when they least expect it, when they're comfortable and feeling assured of their victory. Lord, will you take them at that moment, just like you did then? Or Oreb and Zeab, the princes of the Midianites, and then Zeba and Zalmunna, when Gideon has got them on the run, and they go to help from their own brothers, and, and they say, no, we won't help you because you don't actually have the kings of Zeba and Zalmunna in your hand yet. So we're, we're not, we don't really trust that the enemies are going to be defeated. And Gideon got to come back with them and say, see, God did give them to me. God did deliver them into our hand. So it tells us, There are times when even those near to us will mock and say, you can't win this. This is too big. The opposition is too great. And in song, they sang, Lord, will you give them, like that particular occasion, 
when our fathers were mocked because they've had the audacity to believe your promise that you would rescue them and they were mocked for it and you vindicated them? Will you do that again? So the Psalms, again, we see this often in the Scripture. We're encouraged to remember God's promises. And here, the psalmist, by storytelling, reminds us of those promises. Reminds us of God's faithfulness. Do you see? God shows us how he has conquered an enemy, a greater enemy in us than Midian. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, Paul has, has laid out the glory of, of the gospel, and he's, he's, he's pulled no punches with respect to the sinfulness of sin and, and the indwelling nature of sin and the, and the absolute depravity and the extent of that depravity as a, as a result of the fall of Adam and Eve. But then he presents to us Christ, the second Adam, who did what the first Adam would not and could not do who's kept perfectly the law of God on behalf of sinful men. And that by by the faith modeled by Abraham, if we believe those promises, that God will impute the perfect righteousness of Christ to all who believe and will cleanse them from all of their sin, both original sin by their nature, but also the sinful deeds that they've done. And now he gets to this crescendo in chapter 8. There is therefore now already... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I just quoted from Paul from Romans 7, where he's, waging, he's, he's recognizing this battle that's waging within him. And he says, but now, therefore, if I'm in Christ, there's no condemnation of me. The war does rage. That's a true statement. But I'm not condemned by it, because I am in Christ The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin into the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you'll turn down in that same chapter, down to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Isn't that the question? In light of all the enemies that surround us and all the enemies that are still camped out within us, and in light of the fact that there's no condemnation in Christ to those who are in Christ, what do we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake 
We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And saints, it's important to remember that you're part of creation. Not even you can separate you from God. See, God shows us here, he's conquered a greater enemy than Midian. If you go back through, when we study Judges, you'll see this. Even the Midian's camels were described as being as numerous as gnats. The army of Midian was like sand on the seashore couldn't number it, just unfathomable numbers. In their mind, it was just such an overwhelming odds. And God is teaching us that far bigger than that adversary, far greater than the danger of Midian, was that which has been conquered in us by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Take note of something else, very important, and we'll see this as we begin our study of Judges. One of the themes that just runs through Judges, it's unmistakable, it's unmissable, is how much the people of God didn't deserve God's rescue. They didn't deserve it. I mean, by all rights, God should have left them to the Midianites. It wasn't because of their faithfulness that God chose to rescue them. And we should meditate here, saints, on the mercy of God. God had delivered his people and conquered their enemies when they did not deserve it. If you're in Christ, maybe you find it easier to think back upon, okay, I know I'm converted. I know God has saved me from hell. I know that my sins are forgiven. But then, tomorrow, when some particular sin provokes you or overwhelms you, you will think, i got to clean myself up and conquer this myself in order for God to receive me back. We, 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 will, we will say, yes, my justification, my original salvation to God was by his grace. But sanctification, that, that's on me. That's not what the scriptures teach. And it's a reminder as we see judges, this cycle of disobedience and God's abundant mercy. Even with more disobedience, we see God's mercy. Ephesians 2, Paul says, you were dead. You weren't sick, you weren't hindered, you weren't limping. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See, Paul's not pulling any punches at all about the pervasive nature of wickedness. It's everywhere. And it's deep and it's broad. Among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now think this through. If God had set his eternal love upon you before the ages began and continued in his love for you while you were still dead in trespasses and sin, how much more now will he deliver you from your present calamity? How much more now that you've been cleansed, you've been washed, you've been healed, how much more that he sees you now in his own son, if you are in Christ, will he not deliver you? But there is a catch here. If you are not in Christ, if you have not believed the gospel call, if you have not turned from your sin by faith that God will deliver you, if you've not believed that Christ and Christ alone can satisfy the just demands of God's holy law, if you have not by faith believed that Christ has done that on your behalf, then you remain under God's just condemnation. So the declaration that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ necessarily means there is condemnation for those who are outside of Christ. The full measure of God's wrath abides upon the sons of disobedience, those who walk in unbelief. So the offer is to everyone. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The offer is for you. If you've not believed the gospel, if you've not embraced Christ in humble repentance, if you've not owned the fact that you are sinful to the core, that every thought and word and deed that proceeds from your heart is stained and tainted with sin, all of it is opposed to God. No matter how big the smile is on your face when you do it. If you've not come to that point and thought, that's my problem, and the only remedy I have is Christ crucified and raised from the dead. If you will believe that, today, the scripture says, is the day of salvation for you. Today, do not harden your hearts. Today, believe that and turn by simple faith in the Son of God, that he will deliver you, that he will rescue you, that he will preserve you. If you are in Christ, meditate upon your baptism. Think back. You may not even remember all the details of it. That's okay. You know that you were baptized. Remember that. Think about it. This This was God's covenant seal to you, covenant assigned to you. Sign, not seal. It was a sign of your being buried with Christ in the waters of baptism. And just as we read in Ephesians 2, that Christ has raised you. And you think, well, I'm not, I don't feel very raised. I don't feel very ascended right now. I'm still in the muck and mire of the ordinary grind of life. Do you believe what the sign points to? That as real as you are sitting here right now, Christ has indeed, God has indeed in Christ raised you. Spiritually, the power of sin has been broken. 
Will you attend yourself to the means of grace, to prayer, to, to, to hearing and reading and preaching the Word of God? To the Lord's Supper, as we meditate upon this here in just a few moments, as we, we, we taste and we drink those signs, those sure signs of, of Christ's body given up for us, willingly laid down, and yet raised. As we read dear Mary's account, or the, the, the account in John chapter 20, of Mary speaking, she thinks to the gardener, Son, where, Sir, where have you laid him? And all Jesus said to her, Mary. And at once, she recognized him. She knew the grace of her Savior. And she believed. And she was redeemed. And she couldn't wait to run and tell the men. Do you rejoice with others? As you gather on the Lord's day, do you rejoice in this? This is true. This is a reality. Think about the way that God has delivered you. Think back upon your redemption from the pit of sin and despair. Meditate upon that. And you also think about providential circumstances from which God has rescued you as well. There are earthly adversaries, earthly enemies, and it's good to remember those things. But far more than that is spiritually how God has delivered you. Remember the darkness in which you once walked and, and consider the wicked around you from that perspective. Not so that you can condone their sin or, or tolerate their sin, but to remind you that the grace by which your eyes were opened to see your sin is the same grace that those around you need. The same grace by which you have been redeemed is the grace that your wicked neighbor needs. Consider your own sanctification. Consider the sanctification of those near to you and think about your progress in holiness, your growth in righteousness before the Lord, and give glory to God for that fruit that you see. Not so that you can be puffed up, but that God can be glorified, for that the gospel power is at work in you. So, those first two stanzas, we, we mark the schemes of the wicked. We remember the Lord's previous deliverance. And those first two responses are, are somewhat passive in their nature. We, we mark the wicked. We see it. We take note of that. We, we call to mind the ways that God has delivered us previously. But now, there's a call to action. There's a call to take an active role, and it's in prayer. The righteous call on God knowing he will hear their prayers. It's a call to faithful prayers. Prayers in faith. Beginning of verse 13, O oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Notice some particular parts of the petition that the psalmist makes here. In, in, in all through the psalm, not just in these last few verses. The first is, is the psalmist asks God, and this ought to shape our prayers, the, psalm, the psalmist asks God to, to move, to act, according to his attributes. 
Look back to verse 1. It worked. Verse 1. Oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, oh God. You know, sometimes when we approach God in prayer, we, we sometimes just compound our words. And, and sometimes we, we, we're buying time because we're not really sure how to pray yet. Sometimes we're, we're just following a, a formula that we've heard. The psalmist dispenses with all of that. He goes right to the point. Oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still. He asks God to work according to his nature, according to his character. God is not passive by his nature. God is an active God. God is a creative God. God is the God who is actively governing everything. I mean, if he weren't actively managing the molecules and the electrons and protons and neutrons and everything in this pulpit, my Bible would just collapse. It is the active work of the word of Christ that holds all things together. And the psalmist says, you're an active God, will you act? Don't be still, don't be silent, because God is the God who speaks. God is the God who works. There's a second thing he asks. The psalmist prays for the defeat of all their enemies. We saw that in verse 9. Do to them as you did to Midian. He doesn't mince words. Lord, will you destroy the enemies? Will you take them out? And as you read through and study Judges, you will see that the Lord used some creative ways to destroy his enemies. It's often the fact when God destroys his enemies, there's a story to tell. And the fact that he doesn't mention Deborah or Barak or Gideon here indicates that he believes it was God who was the deliverer, not these men. So do to them. God prays, or the, the psalmist prays for the destruction of the enemies. And third, the psalmist prays for God's name to be praised, even by his enemies. See, this can be missed sometimes in these imprecatory psalms, because we think it's, it's, all, it's only for destruction, but there is yet hope for the enemies, even in the midst of this prayer. Look at verse 16. Fill their faces with shame that... They may seek your name, O Lord. In other words, humble my enemies so that they will turn to you. Then in verse 18, let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. See, nothing proves more than the death and resurrection of Christ that God has answered these prayers. Don't be still, God. Don't be silent. He wasn't. He sent his own son. He sent his own son into the realm, into the world of sinful men to take on our flesh, to walk among us, and to conquer the powers of sin and even death. Isn't this what Paul says in Colossians 2? Beginning in verse 9, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also, you were circumcised with circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This, these legal demands, this certificate of debt, this guilty verdict was nailed to the cross. Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, listen to this, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Isn't that precisely what Asaph prayed? Lord, will you put our enemies to open shame? Do you think Paul has this in mind when he writes Colossians? There's a good chance of that. This is what's happened to all of Christ's adversaries. He's put them to open shame. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, picking up this same idea in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The psalmist here asked that the Lord would conquer all their enemies. And it's almost as if the Lord says, I'll do you one better. I'll deal with the enemy inside you. I'll conquer that adversary that you've underestimated. You're so fixated on the one that has the spear and the bow that you've neglected the one who's already breached your gate, the one who's already in the city. And not only that, because of your first father Adam and his fall, you are all doomed to the enemy named death. You will all fall, even if you conquer the Midianites, even if you conquer the Hagrites, even if you conquer the sons of Esau, you're going to die. And then what? If you're in Christ, you'll be raised again. You'll be given a new body, an imperishable one. You won't be restored to where Adam was. Adam was still had the, the chance of falling, and he did. One day, saints, if you're in Christ... You will be raised. You will you'll be face to face with God Most High. And there will not be even the possibility of you rebelling against Him. There will not even be the happenstance that you could mess it up. Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven changes everything. And Asaph 
prayed in, in Psalm 83 according to the light that he'd been given. He prayed in faith. But don't we have greater light? Don't we have more cause for a faithful prayer along these same lines? That we will mark our enemies, but in, in, in a measure of faith, that we know how the book ends? That we will call upon the Lord for his pre, based on his previous victories over our adversaries, knowing that the adversaries are far greater than what Asaph understood, and that even those enemies have been defeated, the enemies of sin and death. And that now with an even greater faith, a greater light than Asaph. I wouldn't say greater faith, but a greater light than Asaph possessed. We're able to pray, believing that God will do all that he said he would do. Saints, how are your prayers shaped by these truths from God's word? How does this affect your praying? How does it affect our praying together? Whether privately or with our families or as we gather in a corporate worship service. Are our prayers shaped by our desire to see God's enemies subdued and defeated, and some of them rescued? Do our prayers reflect a growing confidence that is animated, that's fueled by the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do we recognize that 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 changed everything? Do we remember that the greatest enemies of all reside in us? Instead of calling on the Lord to defeat Sisera and Jabin, may the resurrected Lord defeat the enemies named idolatry and covetousness. Like Oreb and Zeb, may the Spirit of Christ conquer our enemies of anger and sexual immorality and a lying tongue. May your fears and doubts be made like Zeba and Zalmunna, slain by the mighty hand of God. Do, do we pray for the nations in this way? Do we look out upon our adversaries, upon the enemies of the world? Do we look out on the nations of the world and pray that God's enemies would bow before him? Do we fervently pray that God would raise up churches to engage in that commanded ministry of reconciliation? We pray with a fervency, God, will you set up embassies around the world where people can come in and be reconciled to God through King Jesus? Do we put skin in that game, not just praying, but are we willing to, 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 to surrender ourselves in those ways? To devote our, our, our time, our treasure, our resources to seeing that happen by God's grace? Do we pray? that God would call men to surrender them, themselves, surrender their lives to proclaim this gospel. And then provide for them, fund them, send them, hold them accountable. Do we, do we pray for those who will publicly proclaim man's guilt before a holy God and that the only pardon available is through the risen and exalted Jesus Christ? See, these are not lofty ivory tower issues, are they? These are not some esoteric, hypothetical, ephemeral kind of ideas. This is the world in which we live. These are the kinds of enemies that we face every day, out there and in here. 
And Psalm 83 reminds us that evil stands no chance of victory. Not even the slimmest of chances. May God be glorified in the saving of sinners. May he also be glorified in the destruction of those who who refuse to turn from their rebellion against him. May God be pleased to glorify himself as his churches offer a, give a sincere offer of peace to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have You've chosen to speak to us in a variety of ways. Lord, please forgive us that the hardness of our hearts requires that diversity of communication. Forgive us that often we need that urgency of a scream to arrest our attention, to speak to us because of the dullness of our hearing. We pray that you will give us hearts that are eager not only to hear the word of God, but to be changed by it, to be subdued by it. When our Lord Jesus speaks to us as prophet, as priest, and as king, will you give us grace to hear him, to demonstrate that we are indeed his sheep because we follow him? Will you teach us and instruct us, preserve us by the grace of of Christ revealed through the power of your Spirit. Grant to us a unity in belief and practice. Grant to us a growing desire to see the name of Christ proclaimed in every place that we will eagerly anticipate that glorious day when we will stand with the innumerable number of those whom you have redeemed out of every nation and tongue and tribe and people. Amen.